Well, if you could ask God for one thing, you knew he'd give it to you. But you weren't asking for yourself, you were just asking for all the people who belong to Jesus. If you could ask God for one thing, for all the people who belong to Jesus, what would you ask God to do for them? That kind of request reveals what we prize. It's a motive level question. It puts our priorities on display. The same thing's true for Jesus, and today's text lets us know exactly what he most desires for his people, but also why he desires what he desires. One of the inescapable questions of today's text that will be forced upon us, the line God will draw in the sand is, do I prize what Jesus prizes? Do I value what he values? Do I want what he wants? It was mentioned earlier, but our passage for today in our series through the Gospel of John finds us in John chapter 17 in the midst of Jesus' prayer. The whole chapter is his prayer. We're in verses 20 through 23. I encourage you to listen attentively as we eavesdrop on Jesus, communing with his Father in prayer, beginning in verse 20, this is what we find. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Join me in prayer once again. Father, we join Jesus now and we ask for unity. Yes, all the believers in all the places, in all the world, in all times, but I'm thinking now of the names and faces of, of this local church. I pray for unity. Not just my definition or somebody else's, but yours. The, the kind of unity that you share in the Trinity. That our unity in this local church would be like that. Indeed, would be that. And we pray that, Lord, for a reason for Jesus' reason, so that the world will know that you have indeed sent your Son. That there was no other way for people to be saved than for Jesus to come and save. And I pray, Lord, that instead of us being a deterrent to people believing because of our factions and disunity, I pray that our unity would be an apologetic for the gospel. 
that people would want to believe because they're dumbfounded by how united we are in Christ. But Lord, we also thank You, O Jesus, that You have given glory. You have given the glory that the Father gave to You. You have given that glory to all who believe. Thank You, Jesus, and we thank You that that glory produces the unity that You so desire for us to enjoy, but also for a reason, so that the world will know with irresistible, undeniable reality that You indeed have been sent by the Father and that we are as loved as You are loved by the Father. Oh God, cause these truths to seep deep in our souls, even now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So four verses, verses 20 to 23, I see has two primary aspects. The whole sermon, pray for ability to, to chew and digest a tight package right here. Jesus' prayer for unity is for the sake of the gospel. That they may be one, so that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus' prayer for unity, verses 20 and 21, is for the sake of the gospel. Then Jesus' gift of glory, the glory you gave me I've given to them, is for the stunning of the world. That the whole world will be inescapably convinced that Jesus' people are as loved by the Father as Jesus is. So his prayer for unity is for the sake of the gospel, and his gift of glory is for the stunning of the world. Those are our two points. First, verse 20 and 21, Jesus' prayer for you. What does he ask God for you? Unity. Why does he ask it? For the sake of the world. There's the who, the what, the why in verses 20 and 21. For whom is Jesus praying? Who is the audience as Jesus is bowed before the Father in John 17? This is just a few short hours before He's going to be crucified. He knows what's ahead of Him. And this is what He's praying. That we would be unified. But, but, but who, who's the we? Who's the you in, in this passage, verse 20? Who's the audience that Jesus envisions? What's the appeal that he makes and what's the aim that he expects? The who, the what, the why is in verse 20 and 21. The audience Jesus envisions first is, look at verse 20. Those also who believe in me through their word. So up until this point, in verses 1 to 5, Jesus has prayed for himself to be glorified. Verses 6 to 19, he's prayed for his 11 disciples Minus Judas. But now in verse 20, he, he, he shifts to start praying for, quote, those also who believe in me through their, the 11's, word. So this first point, Jesus' prayer for you is unity for the sake of the gospel. Jesus' prayer for you. Well, I say you only insofar as you fit the description that Jesus makes clear 
in verse 20. Now, this is an amazing thing that you could listen to the Son of God pray for you, but who is the you? Let's be specific. That is those who believe in me. That's who Jesus is praying for. If that description fits you, then in this prayer, Jesus is praying for you. What a precious portion of Scripture. There's not another verse. There's not another passage like it in the whole Bible. There are passages where Jesus envisions all who will believe the gospel, but there's no other passage in the Bible where you can hear him pray for you. How sweet and precious. What a portion of sacred scripture. Unlike any other, we read verbatim the content of Jesus's heart from which his words flow in prayer to his father for all who believe. Robert Murray McShane died when he was 29 years old, the Scottish Presbyterian pastor. And he was a mighty man of scripture and mission. He went to Jerusalem for like Israel for about six months, left his pastorate to go evangelize the, the, the people there. He, he comes back and revival had broken out under the preaching of William Chalmers Burns. And, and he was just so thrilled that the Lord visited his people in a Christ-exalting, word-centered, clergy-led revival that shook the nation and he was just a mighty man of, of the Lord. He died, as I said, at 29. And this is what McShane said. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is praying for you. If you fit this description, he's praying for you. Those who believe in me. But notice, as he prays for you, he, he prays two specifics. He, he, he specifies the means of how people come to believe, the means of gospel advance, but, but he also guarantees gospel success. Just look at it briefly there in verse 20. The means of gospel advance. How do people come to believe in him? Answer, those who believe in me, here it comes, through their word. Through their word. He again is referencing the 11 disciples. They are presumably listening to him pray. At least John is who writes down this passage. Through their word. That is through their witness to Christ, through their proclamation of the gospel. Jesus knows that in 72 hours, these men are going to see him alive from the dead. And hell itself could not stop them from telling the known world that Jesus is alive from the dead. John was standing in the streets of Jerusalem about 50 days after this. When he saw God heal a man, which subsequently, to leave a lot of detail out, landed Peter and John in prison. And when Peter and John were in prison, they of course rejoice in the Lord, praise him, give him glory. They get released with whipping and lashing, no doubt lacerating their back, professional Lashers, Roman soldiers, grown men, military trained with whips in their hands, know how to break skin. These men were whipped to a bloody pulp. And it 
tells us in Acts they went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. And, and the people who, who whipped and imprisoned them said, stop telling people about Jesus. To which they said, John, one of them, Peter and John, whether it's right in the sight of God or you, you be the judge. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus said, I'm praying for everybody who believes in me through their word. Their word, the means, is gospel proclamation. The truth that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again on the third day. Their witness to Christ, that's the means. The means if you don't hear the gospel, you can't be saved. There is no other way to believe on Jesus than by the apostolic gospel, the word of the disciples, the testimony. I believe on the authority of Scripture that, as Spurgeon said, a lot of people can preach the gospel better than me. Nobody can preach a better gospel. I believe on the authority of Scripture, not by the goodness of any person here and definitely not the goodness of any pastor here. I believe we are preaching the exact same gospel that the disciples preached. We're telling you the same message here at Grace Church that the disciples told the known world. John, who wrote this chapter and heard Jesus pray this prayer and spread the gospel through the known world and became the pastor of the church at Ephesus and was exiled to the island of Patmos, he wrote these words, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. That's the word. Those who believe in me through their words. That's the means. Nobody can get saved without hearing the gospel. Nobody can get saved without hearing the gospel. Nobody can get saved without hearing the gospel. How will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring gospel, good news of good things. Dear friends, there's no other way to be saved than by this means. But notice also the guarantee. Jesus is praying for all who will believe through the means of the gospel proclaimed. But he's also, notice this, it's, it's right there in verse 20. He's guaranteeing the success of the gospel. He knew not might, but there would be those who would believe. All who believe. He knew they were coming. And he could envision them like nobody else is able even in this prayer. I, I believe it's proleptic. Jesus is looking down through the corridors of human history. He sees every baby that would ever be conceived in every womb. He knows through time and through space, chronologically and geographically, every human who would ever be born. He ordained their life and he knew all whom the father had given to him would come to him and when he's in this prayer in John 17 he's guaranteeing the success of the gospel I'm praying for all who will believe in me through their word 
He can see the end of the ages where we read in Scripture things like this, also written by John, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they're all falling on their faces before the throne. They're all worshiping God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Jesus knows who's going to believe. He's guaranteeing the success of the gospel. The Bible's so full of this apostolic gospel, their word. Paul writes uh, an apostle untimely born to the church at Ephesus. And when I said nobody can believe, nobody can get saved without hearing the gospel, I'm saying it because of verses like this, Ephesians 1.13. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believing, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Have you believed the gospel? So the first consideration under our first point, Jesus' prayer for you is unity for the sake of the gospel. We've talked about you. Let's, that's the who. Let's talk about the what. What's the appeal Jesus makes? Our, our second consideration under the first point is verse 21. He prays for you, you who believe in him. What does he ask and why does he ask it? That's our second and third consideration under our first point. He asks, he makes an appeal, verse 21, that they may all be one. He prays for unity. Those who know God, which according to verse 3 includes every true Christian, to those who know God, this prayer is, is, is breathtaking. I mean 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 4, Queen of Sheba, before Solomon, take your breath away. There's no mistaking the quality of the unity among believers for which Jesus prays. Verse 21 elaborates in the words of Jesus to the Father that the quality of the unity for which he is praying, the same unity among Christians as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoy among the Trinity. This is such a massive focus of Jesus' prayer in John 17. He reiterates it just two verses after where we're at now. In verse 11, he's already prayed for the 11 disciples. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. The quality of the unity. It's totally breathtaking. Do you know how unified God is with God? Do you know the seamless, harmonious, you can't find the edges, though they are distinct persons. There's one God. There are not three gods. Do, do you know the harmony among the Trinity, the unity, the exuberant, eternal delightedness that God has in God, that God has never had friction with God? Jesus is praying not only for all believers in verse 21, but reiterating that his for unity among them, but reiterating that unity in verse 22b, that they may be one just as we are, verse 23, I in them 
you in me, that they may be perfected, brought to a complete end in unity. You can't read John 17 without realizing that our unity as believers in Christ is a huge deal to Jesus. It's a huge deal to Jesus. Is it, I started the sermon by saying, what, what would you ask for, for all Christians? This is what Jesus would ask for, unity. This is what he wants. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. He grounds his prayer for our unification in his unity with the Father. Not that we would just be on the same page kind of unity, but an in one another kind of unity. A one body kind of unity. If one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. No one could say to another one, I have no need of you, just like an eye cannot say to a foot, I don't need you. We are together. We are harmonious. We live in gospel, Christ-centered, Trinity-like unity. Uh, to live as Christ unity, a no longer I but Christ unity, a Christ formed in us, Galatians 4 unity. If you're pursuing that kind of God-besottedness, a God-saturatedness in your life, you will be unified with those who are pursuing God-saturation in their lives. You see, the unity doesn't happen accidentally. It happens purposefully, focusedly. As I look at the Trinity, by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father, as I get more deeply absorbed through the Word of God in God's own delightedness in God, then I get closer to every person who also is looking to Him. But if one person on the axis is not looking to Him, there's no unity like this. All it takes for Jesus to say to the churches in Revelation, but I have this against you. All it takes is for one person to lose their first love. But if we all fix our gaze on Christ, it's like the old illustration of the axes on, on that triangle. As we both pursue God in Christ by the Spirit, we inevitably get closer to one another. So I want to ask you, how God-besotted is your life? Not segments of your life. Not, not, not time windows of your week. How God-besotted is your life? Because the deeper you immerse your soul in the triune God, Jesus guarantees the more unified you'll be with all who so saturate their lives with God. That they may be one just as we are, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me, verse 22, and love them even as you loved me. When unity in Christ among believers is enjoyed, it's better than can be described. 
The psalmist knew it so well, didn't he? Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. You may be saying, well, you know, what's the big deal? Why has Jesus brought it up now for at least the third time? Because more than anybody else, he knows the cost. He knows the consequence when believers are not unified. Do, do you know? Do you know the damage done when you do not live in loving harmony with the saints? It costs you a lot. It costs them a lot. But have you considered the disrepute that you bring on the reputation of Jesus in the world? Have you thought about being a reverse witness to the gospel? Have you thought about the consequence of effectively telling the world with your life that you prefer that they not believe the gospel and perish in their sin when you live out of harmony with the saints? The cost of believers not being unified is the world not believing the gospel. Why would they want to believe? when we're at each other's throats. When the gospel unity among believers is threatened, it's definitely a sorrow to all who walk with Jesus. To the Christian who is trying to live a spirit-filled, word-saturated, obedient to Jesus' commands life, who's not in unity with another believer, I assure you, they don't sleep well at night. But if you sleep well at night, because you could care less. Unity among believers is a 212 on your list of top priorities. So you sleep fine at night when you're out of harmony with other Christians. Have you considered your reverse witness to the glory of Jesus in the world? Who does he pray for? All who will believe. What does he pray that would be unified? Why does he pray it? So that the world may know that he's sent. This is why we can't get away from the refrain in the book of Acts. When the Spirit filled the church in Acts, what happened? Acts 4.24, Acts 5.12, we could go on. They were together in one accord. They lived in gospel harmony. And what happened? 3,000, 5,000, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Pentecost in Jerusalem, Pentecost in Samaria, Pentecost in the uttermost parts. The Spirit fell all over the place wherever believers went. And God was using the apologetic, the undeniable argument of believers' unity as a framework and a foundation for the propagation of the gospel. So I close our first point here. You cannot walk humbly with Jesus and not walk hand in hand with His kids. You cannot walk humbly with Jesus. And I put humbly on purpose because many presume to be walking with Jesus who are out of harmony with His kids. You're not under grace. You're actually under delusion. 
Because you cannot walk humbly with Jesus and not walk hand in hand with his kids. Any other presumption would mean, according to Jesus' logic in John 17, you're either lost in your sins under the delusion that you're saved, or at best, which is not a good option, you are hanging a serious question mark over the validity of your conversion. So I ask again, how significant a matter is it to you that you be in unity like the Trinity with the believers that you know, particularly of your local church? How significant a matter is that for you? So beneath the first point we saw in verses 20 and 21, we dipped into the unity in verse 22 and 23, that Jesus prays for all who will believe to be unified for the sake of the spread of the gospel, that they will believe that you sent me. That's the aim. That, that's why he's praying, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He, re, he reiterates that again in verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. It is an apologetic to the world when a bunch of people who don't have anything in common. I know somebody might not know us walk in the door today and say, oh, of course, they all go to the same church. Look at them. They, they got everything in common. No, we don't. No, we don't. But you want to know what nobody who's an unbeliever could deny? If what they say they believe puts them so deep in unity, so together in their harmony, maybe there's something to this message they keep proclaiming so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our second and final point, verses 22 and 23. So he prays for unity for the sake of the gospel. And then here's our final point. He gives glory for the stunning of the world. Look at it in verse 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may believe that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Verse 22, he gave glory into verse 23. I'm saying for the stunning of the world. The glory which you have given me, I have given them. Jesus' gift to you is glory. His prayer for you is unity, but his gift to you is glory. This is another just deep, breathtaking reality. Jesus isn't speaking, I don't believe, of his eternal glory, which he certainly had. He references that in verse 5, the glory he had with the Father before the world was. I don't think it's that because it's a given glory, the glory you gave me. I believe he's talking about his incarnate glory. When truly God and truly man, he lived the life that every man should have lived. He lived the life of perfect God glorification as a human. And he's going to give that glory to all who believe in him so that one day, very, very soon, as we soberly realize this morning could be any day for any of us. One day, very, very soon, all who believe in Jesus 
will be perfectly glorified and remain truly human. You're going to have the same glory in the Father's presence for forever as a Christian that Jesus had on earth. A glorified human, I'm, Jesus says, giving them that glory. It's a God-sized gift that Jesus alone can provide. You know, if you go around Jesus to get to the Father, you perish. You can't stand in His presence without a mediator. God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. You can't come to Him favorably without a mediator. And Jesus gives the right, John 1.12, for you to become a child of God, to be accepted in His presence, indeed into His family. So He gives glory. I believe this is the glory He enjoyed on earth and the glory He now enjoys in heaven as an incarnate bodily mediator. He retains His body forever. You will be embodied forever. You will be reunited to your human body, glorified in the age to come. You will be without sin. You, in that sense, will be Christ-like. He's giving you that glory. Why? Why is He doing it? He gives two reasons here. We've already touched one. So that the world will believe that you sent me. But do you see the second reason? You can insert, so that the world may believe that you sent me, so that the world will know that you love them just as you loved me. So Jesus gives a God-sized gift, glory, that He alone can give, but He also gives a love that He alone purchased. Last week we saw that evangelism, getting the Gospel to other people, is a fruit of our sanctification. Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. I send them into the world. So He sends Word-sanctified people. The more your, the roots of your life go down into the truth of God's Word, the more you meditate on Scripture and it becomes absorbed into your life, transforming your character, inevitably, the more you're sent and you see the opportunities that you had so many times that you missed because you weren't a Word-saturated person. So sanctified people, we saw last week, are sent into the world, verse 17 and 18. But today we're seeing that evangelism is also the fruit of our unity and fellowship with the Father. The more we walk in fellowship with Him, perfected in unity, the more we together go on mission to this world. We're unified so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. But I have to close with this. I've said breathtaking twice. This is heart skip a beat breathtaking the, the end of verse 23 the love with which the father loved the son is the same love with which he loves us and Jesus is praying that the whole world will know this so I said at the beginning Jesus prays for unity for the sake of the gospel and he gives glory for the stunning of the world this is what I mean Jesus 
wants the whole world to know how much the Father loves you. I mean, we read about it in the New Testament, but I've just got to end the sermon with a lot of honesty here because I struggle to believe that God loves me a lot of the time. I mean, I know the verses. And I know some of the verses that some of you know. In love, He predestined me to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. I know that. I know He did it out of love. I know that He has, by the Holy Spirit, shed abroad the love of Christ in my heart. But sometimes, I have to admit, it's just hard for me to believe it. I wish that I had more childlike faith. Childlike meaning reminded me of a story of little, little Matthew Nash. Not, not Pastor Matt Nash, but, but his son Matthew. We were at their house a few weeks ago, my family enjoying dinner, and Cassie was telling us a story how earlier that day uh, she said to Matthew, I love you, and, and Matthew said, thank you. And I just thought, what a great response. Receive, believe, accept. The Father tells me all the time He loves me. He shouts it through His Word time and again, just like He shouted from heaven to the Lord Jesus on two occasions, this is my beloved Son. I know the verses, Colossians 1, were transferred from darkness into the kingdom of His loved Son. I know the verses. I just don't know why my heart can't say thank you. You know why? Because like you, I've been hurt by a lot of people who say they love me. And I hold God at arm's length for no fault of His own. Greater love has no man than this that He laid down His life for His friends. God demonstrates present tense his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. I know the verses. Why can't I say thank you? Why can't I just say, I know. I know you love me. Do you know I know Jesus loved the Father. Don't, don't get me wrong, and I'm trying to say this with precision. I know Jesus loved the Father perfectly. Do you know how many times He said it? One time. One time He said He loved the Father. Do you know how many times He said, the Father loves the Son? Over and over again. He was dominated by the awareness of the Father's love for Him. Therefore, He was untouchable. Nobody could get to Him. Because he knew how much the Father loved him. He wasn't a chameleon that would change how he acted around different groups of people because he knew that he lived for the audience of one. He basked in the Father's love. He received, he believed, he basically said, thank you. And it fueled his obedience. I don't know if it'll knock your socks off like it does mine. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in John 17. He's not talking about you accepting the reality that God loves you. That's not it. You don't know, you want to know what he's talking about? He's talking about a day coming very soon when the whole world is going to put their hand over their mouth and they're going to say, 
Can you believe how much the father loves Charles Foster and loves Angie Smith? and loves Emily Bailey, and loves Paul Tyler, and loves Tim Hill, and loves Melissa Harrington, and loves Mindy Yates. Can you believe it? Jesus wants the world to be stunned at how much the Father loves you. He wants their jaw to drop, their breath to skip, their heart to stop. How much does he love you? The same way he loves Jesus. You get the same love. And I know it's hard for us to accept it sometimes. But hear me. You're not going to be able to unbelieve it really soon. You're not going to be able to not believe it really soon. And the whole creation can't wait for you to be able to not believe it. The whole earth is groaning, suffering the pains of childbirth, eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself can't wait for you to get glorified. To be set free from its subjection to slavery because of the curse of sin in this world. The trees are going to shout when you get glorified. And so is the whole world. That the world may know that you love them just as you love me. Why does he give you glory? For the stunning of the world. One commentator said, the thought is breathtakingly extravagant. The unity of the disciples as it approaches the perfection that is its goal, telos, that's the word, perfect them in unity serves not only to convince many in the world that Christ is indeed the supreme locus of divine revelation. You want to know God? You have to know Him in Christ. That's what he's saying. But that Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content and fulfilled because we are loved by the Almighty Himself with the very same love He reserves for His Son. It's hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. He prays for unity so that more people will believe the Gospel. Are we a reverse witness to the gospel? Are you out of unity with any believer in this church? Jesus says if that's the case, you're a reverse witness to the gospel. You're an apologetic for why people should not believe that God sent his son. And... Are you willing, if that's the case, to do whatever is necessary to pursue Trinitarian blood-bought unity? Are you willing to humble yourself? Are you willing to, as our Lord's Supper meditation says every week, we don't fence the table with Navy SEALs. We fence the table with gospel truth. Are, are you forsaking all 
known sin. Are you asking God and others whom you've sinned against for forgiveness? Just skim our church covenant again. Every one of those lines, minus one, can be substantiated with a bunch of verses in the Bible, and I'll tell you about the one at our members' meeting. How much longer are you willing to walk in a pattern of discord with Christ's people? You can ask the same question this way. How much longer are you willing to not absorb yourself in fellowship with the triune God? You could ask it another way. How much longer are you willing to bring disrepute on the name of Jesus to tarnish His reputation in the world? Does the honor of Christ in your life have little weight, no import, no significance, or do you prize what He prizes? Would unbelievers be compelled to want your faith because the love that they see that you have for the people in this room I believe that's the primary location this love is fleshed out. Do you want the world to have a tangible portrait, a living epistle of the love of God for His people? Are you jealous that the lost world starving for true love? You know what they want. They want to know they're loved. They want to know they're loved. Are you desperate and jealous for a lost world starving for love to find the source of their longing satisfied in the source of God's love in Christ, which you too have found to be the satisfaction of your own heart? If your answer to any of the above is no, or that seems okay for other people to desire, but those matters are of little import to me, do you understand that you've not come to believe the apostolic gospel, the word of the eleven? Go read their accent, their labor to accent Christian unity. Flip to almost any page of the New Testament and you will find a labor for these disciples and the apostolic writers of the New Testament to accent the import of gospel unity. Do you believe in Jesus? I pray not for these, but for those who believe in me through their word. Do you believe in him? Are you one for whom Jesus is praying in these verses? If not, you can become such a one. Today, right now, right here, in the presence of God and his people. If you're walking out of fellowship with the triune God, which has a ricochet effect of you walking out of fellowship with his people, you can repent of that right now. If you're having a reverse witness in the world to the glory of Christ and the beauty of the gospel, you can, you can actually repent. You can ask God for forgiveness. You could go to your fellow brother or sister. So, today's invitation is this. For those who are baptized Christians, forsaking all known sin, and you belong accountably to a church that preaches the gospel that you heard today, Partake in the Lord's Supper, or during that time, ask God and somebody else for forgiveness. Be reconciled so that you can enjoy gospel unity and harmony. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember, there's this wedge 
of sin between you and your brother, and it's your fault, first go be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. It's not hang on to the sin and never make an offering. It's get right with God so that your offering will be acceptable in His sight. So I leave you with this, knowing exactly what time it is. During today's Lord's Supper, which is going to follow immediately after the prayer I'm about to pray, I'm going to ask some of you, instead of sitting down, get up. Go to a person. Ask them for forgiveness. Stay where you're at. Ask God to forgive you for not living a life saturated in God's fullness and unity. Repent from all known sin. Because here's a big, big deal. The reputation of Jesus in the world is at stake among all who name his name. We have to be in fellowship with him and one another for them to believe the gospel. Otherwise, we're a reverse witness of everything we say we believe. So for these moments, we're going to close this way. I'm going to pray. There'll be three-ish minutes for you to either receive the elements and take the supper. Remembering the gospel of the blood and the body of Christ. Or for you to go to another brother or sister. For you to pray where you're at. I'll pray. You respond to Jesus. After those few minutes, I'm going to ask these precious folks to close in the song that they had prepared. You can keep ministering to each other. Or doing business with the Lord. As they sing. And when they sing, our service will be concluded. Father, I'm asking for what Jesus asked for. I pray for unity for the sake of the gospel so that the world will believe that you sent him. pray for unity among this church like the Trinity has unity. And I also pray that you would cause us to believe that there's a day coming when the whole world is going to be shocked into the awareness of how much you love us. Let us believe. Let us believe that we will not be able to unbelieve how much you love us one day very soon. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you that we can come to you now and get right with you and live a life that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. In the next few moments, you can go to another person. You can partake in the Lord's Supper. You can do business with the Lord. And I'm going to ask the group to come and maybe even just play quietly if Joel's around. And uh, our service will conclude as they sing.